If you were with us last time, you remember that I gave four outline points that are listed for you there on your sheet, detailing verses three to six of chapter one. And we were asking two questions each underneath the four points of that message. And what I said to you was that the Apostle Paul was, in a sense, catechizing. You know, catechism is that uh, teaching device for children and even adults uh, where a series of questions are being asked and then the constructed biblical answer. And if you've ever been involved in catechizing your children, uh, this is a wonderful device that the Lord has given us in the church to be able to ask questions and receive the answers from a biblical perspective. And that's, I think, essentially what the Apostle Paul is doing here. He's catechizing his readers regarding the great salvation that we have in Christ. And by way of a review, let me summarize what we covered last time from verses 3 to 6. You'll see it there on on, uh, your sheet. And then we'll move on to cover verses 7 through 10 tonight. And Lord willing, next time we'll finish verses 11 to 14. I reminded you when we started last week that this is one long sentence of the Apostle Paul in Greek, uh, 220 words. And so even though we have the benefit in our English translations of periods and commas, this is actually one long running running sentence in uh, Paul's great affirmation of sovereign salvation. And really, if you look at two major ideas, verse 4, he chose us. That controls that first section in verses 3 to 6. And then what controls the section that we'll look at tonight is verse 7. We have redemption. So, two great ideas. If you want to look at this entire section with those two great motifs, number one, he chose us, and number two, we have redemption. And part one of last time in verses three to six, we saw the first of four outline points, the proper response to God's sovereign salvation should be what? His praise, his praise. And we saw two questions that were being asked in this verse. The first one is this, who is to be praised? And the answer, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the answer of who is to be praised. And then the second question of this verse, with what has he blessed us? Here's the answer, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So the proper response for every single believer to this sovereign salvation should be praise to our God, our God and Father, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and the only possible response, the only proper response should be to praise God for that salvation. Secondly, the principal reason to praise God and His sovereign salvation is His doctrine of election the doctrine of election. Verse four, two questions of this verse. When did this election of certain ones take place? The answer, before the foundation of the world. You remember I said to you that even before time began, God had instituted 
a sovereign plan whereby we would be elect, chosen, before we were ever born, before we did anything right or wrong. God had a sovereign salvation plan that was effectuated when Jesus Christ died on that cross for sinners like you and me. And we look back at the grand sweep of when God had effectuated this plan and it began in eternity past, before the foundation of the world. The second question, why was I elected? The answer, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Election is not some random doctrine that says God is going to plan something out in the beginning, but he doesn't have a plan for the present nor the future. He does have that plan, and that plan is for you and I to be elected unto grace, and then we are to be in time holy and blameless before him. He's elected us so that we might be sanctified, set apart by God as his exclusive possession for his use. That's God's plan. And then thirdly, the poignant recognition to praise God and his sovereign salvation is his predestining adoption. His predestining adoption. Verse five, two questions of this verse. With what motive did God adopt me to be his son? The answer, in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons. The motive, he loved us. He loved us so much that he predestined us to adoption for the opportunity to be adopted by him, whereby once we were his enemies, hostile to God, friends of the world, he nevertheless, in his electing love, caused us to be predestined, chosen, determined beforehand to be adopted as his sons and daughters. That's what this verse says. And the second catechetical question, what purpose did God have in adopting me into his family? According to the purpose of his will. You say, why did God do this? The answer, according to the purpose of his will. I need more, someone might say. Here's the answer, according to the purpose of his will. And then fourthly and finally from last time, the primary resource in God's sovereign salvation is his glorious grace. Verse six, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. Beloved, what's that question? Who's to be praised? Here it is, the praise of his glorious grace. We're, we're praising the God of grace, but we're also praising the glory of that grace. Because when God puts his his grace on display in the lives of sinners like us, his glory is also placed on display, display because there was no reason for God to display that grace in us. There was no reason that any of us should have been elected to grace. If God were to have willed it so, once Adam plunged the whole human race into sin, And if he had decided in those eternal counsels of the past not to elect anyone, he would have been totally righteous in doing so. But out of the mass of sinful humanity, God chose to put his electing love, his predestining adoption on some so that his glorious grace would be put on display even more. And that's the glory of his grace. That's why we should praise God. And then the second question of that fourth 
And final outline point from last time, with what and in whom has he blessed us? The answer, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. We are loved because we are in the beloved. It's not because there's anything inherent within us that deserves God's mercy and grace. There isn't anything in our lives whereby we deserve God's favor. No, we are loved by God, predestined to adoption as sons according to his glorious grace because he's blessed us by virtue of our being in the beloved one. We are loved because we're in the beloved. Now tonight, I want us to cover verses 7 to 10 in the same way, by way of this form of catechism, as we just saw from verses 3 to 6. And in part two of our message tonight, I want you to see four more outline points in which we want to see the sovereign salvation of God that we've been given. And the first is this, the pardoning redemption we have in this sovereign salvation is the forgiveness of our trespasses, the forgiveness of of our trespasses. Verse 7. I told you this was the great thematic phrase of this section, verses 7 to 10. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. What's Paul's catechism coming out of this verse? Here's the first of two questions. Number one, How is it that I am redeemed and forgiven? Here's the answer. Redemption. In him we have redemption. How? Through his blood, which then results in the forgiveness of our trespasses. Now let that sink in. You and I, headed down a road of certain doom. And God in his mercy gave us what we didn't deserve and gave us, instead of that certain doom, certain grace, certain love. All that we've been looking at, all that we've been studying. How is it that I'm redeemed and forgiven? Redemption. And the apostle Paul here describes, declares that this sovereign salvation which, which God the Father in choosing us, electing us unto grace, says here in verse 7 that it is through redemption by his blood or through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. That's something to contemplate, isn't it? I mean, as that song was sung a moment ago, do you in fact, as Sabrina introed that song, thinking each and every day as you wake up, God has redeemed me. God has redeemed me. And not only that, all of those those sins of my life, that which I'm so very familiar with, that, that which has dogged me all of my life has been forgiven, totally taken away. God has done that. This concept of redemption, by the way, is that sense of things that you and I were dogged by sin's slavery in the slave market of sin. And God has given us redemption, a buying back from this slave market of sin, my life. 
In fact, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus because this sense of redemption goes all the way back to the children of Israel and their bondage in Egypt in chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6. This concept of redemption from sin's slavery goes all the way back to this time when Israel was under bondage in Egypt and God was promising their deliverance. This is, this is an old doctrine that goes all the way back to the people of Israel. In chapter 6, you notice, for instance, in verse 6, Moses says, Say therefore, God through Moses, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you. There's our word. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Now think of that. Over 400 years of slavery. And you remember that slavery in Egypt was at times incredibly difficult. Remember the straw and the brick? And remember the, the people of Israel were those kinds of people who because of that intense slavery and because of the oppression of Pharaoh wanted, prayed for, longed for, desired intensely this deliverance. And when the time was right, in the fullness of time, God said, it is time, and I promised you I would do this, and this time will come. And I have this great outstretched arm, and I will deliver you from this bondage. And notice this tenderness here. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God. What a tender word of mercy from our God. That's what happens to us in our salvation, doesn't it? Look at Deuteronomy chapter 13. The same idea. Deuteronomy 13, verse 6. Same concept. Chapter 13, verse 6. And this, is, this is quite graphic. If your brother, the son of your mother, or your son, or your daughter, or the wife you embrace, or your friend who is as your own soul entices you secretly, saying, let us go and serve other gods which neither you nor your fathers have known, some of the gods of the peoples who are around you, whether near you or far off from you, from the one end of the earth to the other, you shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him, but you shall kill him. Why? Because he's going after foreign gods. High treason. High spiritual treason against the Lord. Hadn't he delivered you? Hadn't he redeemed you? Why would you go back to foreign gods? Your hand shall be first against him. 
this one who wants to chase after foreign gods, to put him to death. And afterward, the hand of all the people, you shall stone him to death with stones. Why? Because he sought to draw you away from the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and all Israel shall hear and fear and never again do any such wickedness as this among you. Chapter 15, verse 15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this day. Chapter 24, verse 17. You shall not pervert the justice Do to the sojourner or to the fatherless or take a widow's garment in pledge, but you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. And then you sweep through the grand narrative of the New Testament. And you have both in Matthew 20, 28 and Mark 10, 45, those famous words that Jesus did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a what? A ransom, a redemption. So all the way back in that slavery of Egypt, God was giving them redemptive deliverance and then sweeping through the sin of our own lives, that which characterizes us, this sinful life that we've been living. And God says, just like I promised The Israelites in Egypt, I now promise you that through my son, I will grant you redemption. I will grant you forgiveness, a ransom, a a price paid. This This is God's great redemption. Do you see that? Do you do you allow that in your mind to evoke great thankfulness? Look at Romans chapter three. This is our condition. This is what we're talking about when we talk about this redemption of God. Romans chapter three. Here's our condition. Both Jews and Greeks under sin. Romans 3.10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's us. That's our condition. That's who we are as sinful humanity. But notice verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's true of all of us. And yet we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a satisfaction by his blood 
to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Justification that brought about our redemption through the one who gave his life on Calvary's tree. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Do you glory in this redemption? Do you glory in this redemption? 1 Corinthians 6.20, for you were bought with a price. Do you, do you contemplate the price that was paid on your behalf? It's, it's really an overwhelming and gracious reality because we know we don't deserve it. We know we haven't earned it. We know there's no merit in us. We're loved because we're in the beloved. This is the way Peter said it in 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse 19 or verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from your futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. I don't know everyone who's sitting here tonight, but I should ask the question at this moment, have you been redeemed by Christ? Have you been redeemed by Christ? Has he paid the price for your slavery to sin? Would you be able to say about your own soul tonight that you've been bought with the precious blood of Jesus? This redemption results, Paul says here in verse seven, in the forgiveness of our trespasses. You know, I'm convinced that the people who recognize the sinfulness of their sin are undoubtedly the ones who bask the greatest in the forgiveness of their trespasses. Sin is such a hideous thing. And in the characterization of our lives, for 18 years of my life, the sin that welled up within me, the anger, the pride, the arrogance, the boastfulness, all of those things and so much more of the sin of the human heart. When you come to the realization of the sinfulness of your own sin, of the lostness of your condition, then it makes the grace of God, the redemptive price of the blood of Christ, that much sweeter to you. You know, sometimes when I talk to Christians and they are so focused on the challenges and problems and trials of their lives, and to be sure, when trials come, they are those things which can be so debilitating to us. But one of the things that I think give us a sense of how to respond to trials is not the focus upon the trials, but a focus upon the forgiveness of our trespasses, even 
in the midst of those trials. I was thinking this week of how thankful we ought to be. Do you know that the Apostle Paul, and we're gonna see this in his prayer, beginning in verse 15 of Ephesians chapter one. I'm convinced that one of the things that Paul was so very much a model for us is in this concept of being thankful. You cannot read his writings without Paul expressing somewhere in a paragraph wherever his writings are found that he's not saying something like this, thank God, thank God. Thank you for my brethren. Thank you for my salvation. Thank you for my deliverance. Thank you for everything that you've done in my life. And as I told you in the first message of this series in Ephesians 1, I think it's because of that Damascus Road experience. I think he realized every day of his life that had he not been redeemed in a moment on that road, and even with all the guilt that for the next three days with those cataracts on his eyes, he thought through all of the things that he was to be blamed for and the shock of all shocks was that he thought everything that he was doing, including the bludgeoning of Christians and the imprisoning of Christians and the killing of Christians was that which was in his credit column before God. And in a moment in time he realized, that's not in my credit column, that's in my debit column. He was astounded by the grace of God, by the redemption and the redemptive price that Jesus paid on his behalf. Now Jesus did say to him, in that Damascus Road experience, I will show you how much you must suffer for my sake. And there is to be suffering in the Christian life. There is that truth that Paul tells Timothy, those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. That's a part of it. But never is that suffering. Never are those trials. Never is that temptation to so plague you that you're not also at the same time through the trial thinking of your great thankfulness to God. That's Paul. That was his life. And he says it here. What kind of thankfulness? The forgiveness of my trespasses. We were, in a word, completely forgiven of all of our sins. What a, what a truth. What a, what a reality. All those sins, every one of them, taken to the cross and nailed there. All sins past, all sins present, and all sins future, completely forgiven. What does he say in Ephesians 2.5? Even when we were dead, in our trespasses. All those sins. Certificate of debts against us, he says the, to the Colossians. And that they were nailed to that cross and those debts were completely taken away. That's, by the way, the word for forgiveness, aphiomy. It's a, it's a sense in which God chooses not to use our sins against us. 
It's not as though God doesn't remember those sins. The reality is this. God chooses not to use those sins against us anymore. And that's the difference between believers and unbelievers. With unbelievers, because they're not under the blood of Christ, he will charge them for the sins of their life, and they will pay the penalty for those sins. And it will be used as a certificate of debt against them. But for us, because that certificate of debt is being nailed to the cross, all of those things have been a theomy, forgiven, taken away. Not as though God doesn't remember them, but what he remembers is that I will not use those sins against you in the day of judgment. Because you're in my beloved. You're in my son. Look at chapter four of Ephesians. And you can see the sense of this, the forgiveness of our trespasses. You can see what God is doing in our lives, challenging us to understand the reality of our forgiveness. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, Ephesians 4, 17, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, but that is not the way you learned Christ. See, that, that's what was, that which characterized us. That's what we were. That's what our life was like. And what did God do? He says in chapter two of Colossians, this is what he did. Verse 13, I've alluded to it. And you, when you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside. That's forgiveness. Can you imagine that? He set it aside nailing it to the cross. Are there, are there not greater words in all of our Bibles? He set it aside. He, he nailed his son to the cross so that our certificate of debt, our sins, our trespasses could also be nailed there so that Jesus could take the punishment that you and I deserved. That's such magnanimous grace. He's forgiven us all our trespasses. Do you remember in the great allegory, Pilgrim's Progress, how John Bunyan describes Christian who had the burden of sin on his back and how through forgiving grace that burden was lifted? Do you know how many people in our world are plagued by sin? They've got this huge burden on their back. And you know what the second question that Paul asks here in his catechetical instruction? Upon what basis am I redeemed and forgiven? Here's the answer. According to the riches of his grace. The riches of his grace. Our pardoning redemption 
in which we receive the forgiveness of sins granted to us by God according to the riches, the wealth of his grace. It's abundant. It's magnanimous. In the Septuagint, this same Greek word is used in 1 Kings 10.23 of the vast riches of King Solomon. That's the kind of riches we're talking about. According to the riches of his grace. Oh, do you know of those riches? Have you been graced by God? You say, yes, I have. Well then, Christian, live like it. Live like it, act like it. Be thankful for it. I know that in our little family, we at times can be some, can be at times so forlorn, so discouraged. And I want often to say to myself and to them, but we have so much to be thankful for. We're headed to heaven. Our sins are forgiven. We've had redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Can, can anything be greater than that? Why aren't we focused on that? Why don't we say to ourselves, it's not that bad? It's not that bad. We're forgiven. According to the riches of his grace, And if that weren't enough, look at your second outline point. The plenteous reward we have in this sovereign salvation is based upon all God's wisdom and insight. Verse eight, this this redemption, this forgiveness, according to the riches of his grace, Paul says in verse eight, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Here's that first question. What was the gracious extent to which God redeemed us? Here's the answer, which he lavished upon us. Lavished. That's a a word that's very, very poetic, isn't it? He lavished it on us. God was extravagant in the depths, the levels, the, the extent that he graced us. The riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Chapter two, verse seven of Ephesians. Here's the way he says it. In the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Romans 5, similar, 15 to 21. You look at Romans 5, 15 to 21. You read that tonight before you go to bed. God has given us redemption, the forgiveness of our trespasses. And how did he do it? To what extent? According to the riches of his grace, which came to us how? When he lavished it upon us. And he uses, here's the second question, what extent to which our God showed his commitment to redeem us? In all wisdom and insight. That's the omnipotent God who uses omniscient wisdom and insight to determine a plan from eternity past to where the three persons of the Godhead, the Father initiates the plan The Son executes the plan by his work on the cross and the Holy Spirit 
secures that plan for our lives by regenerating us and bringing us to the realization that we are sinners and when we repent of our sins, when we turn from our sin and when we place our confidence in no one else but Jesus Christ, then God says to us, that plan was given to you through the totality of my wisdom and my insight. And what is the totality of God's wisdom and insight? It simply cannot be measured by us. Can't be measured. Notice his words there. All wisdom, in all wisdom and insight. By the way, he's going to tell us in this prayer of Paul, look at verse 17 of chapter 1 that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. You know what Paul's saying there? here's, Here's my prayer request for you, Ephesians. My prayer request is that you will come to the understanding in the spirit of wisdom that all of God's wisdom, all of his knowledge can be known to you in this unfolding revelation of how you were redeemed. That's what I want you to know. That's why you come to church. That's why you hear preaching. That's why you read your Bible. That's why you study other books that clarify what the Bible teaches because you're in an ever-increasing opportunity to understand the unfolding, incredibly powerful, omniscient wisdom and insight of God about how you were redeemed. That's that's the salvation that we enjoy. And by the way, we not only find out about that spirit of wisdom and insight about our salvation in the here and now, but that's why eternity is forever, because you and I will be praising God and ever learning about the salvation that we've received so that in eternity we'll be ever learning, ever understanding this glorious salvation that we enjoy. We'll be praising God forever and ever and ever because of the, win- the insight and the wisdom that we receive about this glorious salvation. This is, this is more than we can bear. Do you fathom this lavished grace of God? Here's the third point, the purposeful revelation we have in this sovereign salvation is the disclosure of the mystery of his will. Verse nine, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ. What's his catechism question? What did God show us in our redemption? Here's the answer. The mystery of his will according to his purpose. Now it's not mystery in the sense that we understand like a mysterious novel, uh, a mystery text. No, this mystery simply means that at a point in time God chose to reveal to us wasn't clearly known before. It's it's to reveal, it's to give us a sense of what God has done for us in Christ. And that's why I call it purposeful revelation. What did God show us in our redemption? The mystery of his will according to his purpose. You can't miss that. Almost at every turn, Paul is saying the purpose of his will, the purpose of his grace, according to his will, 
God purposed for you and for me to know that God has a plan and he progressively revealed that plan to the degree that you and I saw the full light of it as much as we can know it when Jesus Christ came to this earth and died for us. And that plan was then revealed to us. That's what he's saying. And how about that second question? How did God show us the mystery of his will? Which he set forth in Christ. I love this. This is summing up everything in Christ. If you want to see a, a most amazing statement in this entire section of verses 3 to 14, it might be that, which God has summed up in Christ. That's what he means there when he says, which he set forth in Christ. And then fourthly and finally, the planned reconciliation we have in this sovereign salvation is his uniting of all things in Christ. When will this reconciliation take place? Here's the answer. As a plan for the fullness of time. God had a plan. He effectuated that plan when the time was right. Romans 5, 6, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. You remember Jesus kept saying, it's not time, it's not time, it's not time. And then at one point he said, it's time, it's time. In the fullness of time, Galatians chapter four, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Fullness of time, at the right time. You say, in my Christian life, I wonder at times if God is choosing the right time to answer prayer, to deliver me from this trial. It shall be in his good time and it will be the fullness of time for you and for me to learn the lessons that we must learn. And it's the same with salvation. At the right time, God chose to act. Not a minute before and not a minute after. In the fullness of of time. And what exactly will be reconciled? Notice the answer. To unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. I love the way Colossians 1 says it. Through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. God will unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth, even those who are begrudging his lordship. According to Philippians 2, he'll vanquish all of his foes and those who love him will serve him because of that uniting and those who don't love him, will they'll be consigned to the reality that they were dead wrong. And even when they gnash their teeth at him, he will be their vanquishing foe. They will have to admit it. And that's the uniting of all things in Christ. Maybe we should end with 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Here's what it says. This is the summing up of all things in Christ. Verse 24. Then comes the end. You want to know what the end is going to be like? Here it is. 
Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, he being Christ, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. This is this plan that God will effectuate for his praise and the son will subject everything to the father and then he will give to the father all that has been subjected because God the father is all and in all and the pinnacle excuse me the pinnacle of it all the sovereign salvation that we have in Christ we are going to be those, those persons who are the ones who gloriously praise God for the sovereign salvation that we've received. Let's bow together in prayer. I ask you this evening, have you personally experienced the sovereign salvation from God? If you haven't, I want to encourage you, implore you to look at this salvation and see Paul's glorious facets made known to him through the mystery of God's will. And I pray that you would see this sovereign salvation for what it is glorious redemption through the forgiveness of our trespasses. And if you've not received that, if you don't know of that, I pray that you would respond even tonight by turning from your sin, embracing Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, and giving him the glory that is due him for his sovereign salvation including in your own life. Father, may it be so for your praise. In Jesus' name, amen.